0: I hope nobody pulled a hamstring on that. We'll just go in our Bibles to uh In your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at a message this morning uh, entitled The Greatest Evil and the Ultimate Good. But I don't know if you're like me, but ever since I've lived in Virginia, I have noticed something. And that is in May when the frost finally breaks and when the 100 Year winter, like in The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe ends, people go crazy. Now I've got friends in Florida, brother and sister-in-law, I mean they've been walking around in t-shirt and shorts for five years now, you know, back before the winter came, but here's the thing that I have noticed about Virginia, that when it gets warm, you get it while you can. Right? I mean, once, once it breaks, I remember my first Spring here. And man, it was just like, I mean, in the winter, you know, it's just normal people going to work, coming home, all that. But boy, once spring got here, it was like, brother, it was game on. I mean, kayaks on cars, people hiking, bikes. I was like, where did all these people come from? I was like, well, they're trying to stay from freezing during the winter. See, here's the thing. I think in May, there is the tendency to get a little restless. Amen? To want to be out and about and doing things, and usually in May for church life, the attendance gets a little light because people are going on vacations and stuff, and being able to enjoy the weather finally without freezing. But I just wanted to say say this. And by the way, some of you are involved in spring cleaning. Do we have any anybody here and you've you've done your spring cleaning? Some of you guys, spring cleaning. You're cleaning out the closet. Your wife's cleaning out your your wallet. You know what I'm talking about? Spring cleaning. Y'all with me? Okay. All of that stuff happens this time of year. And sometimes it can get a little bit difficult to focus. I think sometimes when we come to church, there's so much going on outside. Everything that's happened before. It's the time of year to where it's just so much fun that if you're like me, it can be a little bit hard to focus. But I'm going to ask you... And we're going to do this together this morning, to just ask God to give us mercy, to give us the, the glasses, to give us the, the eyewear of the Bible, to be able to look at what suffering looks like through God's eyes and not just through our eyes, so that at the end of this message here, in about an hour and a half, because I've got a lot to preach, all right? Like at the end of this sermon, some of y'all are like, are you serious? Alright, at the end of this sermon, your life will be changed. That this will not just be another church service, but you will, your worldview, the way that you look at the world, and the way that you understand the difficult things that you and your family have endured and have suffered, it will be profoundly changed so that you will understand your suffering and your life in a proper perspective. And there are two extremes. Uh, One person, they can have the bottom falling out in their life and they may say something like, well, it could always be worse. Well, that will cheer you up, right? And hey, could it always be worse? Yes. But that's not the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective, and this is in your notes, is that Jesus, the innocent one, the perfect one, endured and suffered the ultimate evil to bring about the greatest good to the guiltiest. In other words, Jesus came and died a horrific death so that sinners could be made right with God. The biblical perspective is not just, well, it could get worse. And the biblical perspective is neither on the other hand to where we become so self-absorbed that we begin to be self-consumed and we withdraw ourselves... Y'all tracking with me on that? You go through a difficult, brutal time and instead of going to Christ and trying to surround yourself by godly men and women, you feel that the only thing you can do is you withdraw yourself. That can many times manifest itself by you no longer wanting to contact and hang out with friends. By you simply wanting to be alone. There was a student I know in South Carolina and he told me, he says, I'm very depressed. He says, I stay in my room and I have very dark drapes. I like being in the dark. And I said, bro, you are depressed. Depressed, and the last thing and the last place that you need to be is in your room by yourself in the dark. But that can be a tendency, can it? To say, No one else understands my pain, so I'm not going to hang out with friends. With family, I'm going to go to work, I'm going to come home. Not only that, I may be sporadic in my church attendance and I'm sure not going to go to a Sunday school small group Bible study which in the pit of suffering, those are the things that you need most. Because sometimes God does a special touch of grace in a person's life, but many times the channels of blessing, the channels of community and church and godly friendship to where people that are your friend, you know they love Jesus. It is those channels, those rivers of mercy that you can place yourself in whereby you will be blessed, but if you isolate yourself, you're going to experience about the same pain as if you simply try to deny that you're suffering at all. So in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, we're going to try to understand what God's Word says about suffering. But the background to this is very simple. The Creator, God, was rejected by His very own creatures. Think about this. The Creator who gave everything the breath of life. Now, the highest of His creation on earth, men and women are wanting to take, do you guys check the irony here? They're wanting to take the life of the one who gave them life. And there was Jesus who proved the moral insanity of people. Somebody tell me, what was the other choice that was given the people? Jesus or Barabbas, the thief? the murderer who is like Satan because the Bible tells us that Satan came to steal, kill, and to destroy. But yet the people chose Barabbas. It was like Jesus was this, this solitary, lone voice of humanity crying out for righteousness Telling people like things like, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God." Blessed are the merciful. When Rome taught you, give, you give no mercy. The Greeks, the pagan world, they all taught what we read on T-shirts today that say, "The meek inherit nothing." Jesus came in and shattered that paradigm, and said things like, "Guys, disciples, let me tell you the cardinal thing by which people will know that you are my guys: your love." for one another. But yet, there was Jesus, the Son of God, the revolutionary of all true revolutionaries, bringing a revolution that brought peace and true love and a relationship with God as opposed to communistic bloodshed revolution or what we're experiencing here in America, socialism and the slow, I guess, poison of communism that way. But yet, behind... This backdrop of what it looked like, uncontrollable, out of control, psychotic evil, was the ultimate plan of the sovereign God of the universe. We're going to address a couple of these questions, and I've had this asked to me before. One was even in the class one time. People wonder this. Say, hey Jeff, was it God's plan that Jesus die on the cross? Yes. Luke twenty two twenty two. The Bible says, "For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined." But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Matthew chapter seven eighteen verse seven. The Bible says, "Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come." But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Acts chapter 2 verses 23 and 24, the Bible says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts chapter 4 and verse 28, it says, it's, uh, in verse 27 it says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 says that He, speaking of Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And let me make a note here that's also in your bulletin. Adam and Eve's sin in the garden did not catch God by surprise. The cross was not God's contingency operation. In fact, what we see in the Bible is the desires of evil people to try to derail God's plan. But behind that, we see God is this sovereign. He allows these people to do what their evil hearts want to do. But yet, I don't know how to explain this. Behind the backdrop... God says, okay, I want you to follow me, but I know that you're going to go your own way, so I'm going to let that take course, but here's the thing, I'm going to work that out for my glory. You see, in the Bible, you see this massive weight of the sovereignty of God, but yet you kind of have this trumpet that's calling people to repent. You see, now Jeff, the Bible says that it was God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross. What in the world... Could God have plan? I mean, what type of a plan is that? Let me give you three statements. Number one comes from Augustine, who was one of the great Christians several hundred years after Jesus lived on the earth. He said, quote, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to allow no evil to exist. Thomas Aquinas said, O oh, fortunate fault, in the Latin Felix culpa, which merited so great a Redeemer. In other words, what historic Christians have understood is that God's plan is that Jesus would come and through redeeming the people who would be saved, those who would repent. And by the way, if you don't know God here this morning, I have good news for you. If you have this weight of sin inside your heart, you know, you need to give your life to Jesus. You know, it's just not church that you need to add to your activities. Y'all. All right. You know you need to get saved. You can get saved today because the Gospel says that whoever believes on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you believe on the name of the Lord, if you repent, what will happen to you today according to God's Word? You will be saved. That's good news, church. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So here's the problem that we have. Many people say, well, Jeff, God is sovereign. It was God's plan that Jesus would be crucified for the sins of the world. What type of point could God have for setting something like that up, for allowing those things to take place? Let's go in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to begin to read there in verse number 8. The Bible says, Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. Here's here's the picture. God gave originally the ability to control the earth, to take care of it, to Adam and Eve. They royally messed up. So here's the thing, this is a great theological point for those of you that are new in your faith, you're wanting to learn more about God's word. There's a concept to where Adam, the original Adam, the historical Adam is our physical and spiritual forefather. He messed up. What do we do? We are like our father Adam. We mess up. Adam rebelled against God. What has every single one of us done until God showed up and opened our eyes? We rebel against God. But when Jesus came, Jesus was the second Adam. He was there to correct the mistakes that the original Adam had made. And not only that, but to die for the sins of mankind. Now notice what it says there in verse 8. It says, but we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. So it's kind of like this. The Bible tells us that God is totally in control. You all get that? You you ever caught that in your Bible, right? Kind of like read it once in a while and like, I think God's in control. I I think that's what what it's teaching. God's in control. But here's the thing. When you look at the world, you're like, really? I mean, man, it's like if God is in control here, I don't know. I'm not trying to say God's wrong. But man, sometimes it looks like things are out of control or God is not the God of the Bible. But notice it says that we do not see everything in subjection to Him. Guess what? There's a day coming to where everything will be. So what do we see? We see rampant evil in the world. And some people say, well, Jeff, what happened to God's plan? God's plan was this I'm going to send a baby. Stop and think about that for just a minute. We've got, you know, we've got people in here who are involved in, in military and law enforcement and then, you know, the real hardcore soldiers, the moms, right? I mean, I'm telling you what, if you want to really clean up some stuff, just send a mad mom over and she'll take care of it, right? So here's the thing. We, you've got tactics and you've got ways to take things down. You've got uh, ability to, to put your resources together and, and to think about all that God had to be able to do something. He has all power, but yet God chose to send a baby. Imagine what the angels are thinking. By the way, the angels don't know the future, only God does. They saw Jesus born there in that humble little dwelling, and they're like, this is it. This, this is the plan. This, this is the, for those of you military folks, this is the shock and awe campaign of God to send a little baby. I think that ought to cause us to at least, when we read this text, slow down for just a minute and realize that many of the greatest things that God could ever do in your life are not these so-called massive miracles, but it's in the day-to-day things that we think are small. But in reality, if we're faithful in the little things, God will trust us with much. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter. 2 and verse 7, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus came. Now notice how the text goes on in verse number 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. It says, but we see him for, who for a while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So now notice, not only does God sin a baby, but when Jesus came, he wasn't a military leader. He he came, and in his job was being that of a carpenter, and the people that he hung out with were the quote sinners. Isn't that interesting? And the people that he chose to be his representatives were those that nobody else had chosen. So let's stop right there. I think that we need to have a profound worldview change to where the people that we associate with all the time are not those who are going to be able to pat our back if we pat theirs. Those people who will be able to give us the deals that we give them. But if we're going to follow Jesus somewhere at some time, we've got to invest in people who can do nothing for us in return. Invest with those people that nobody else wants to be with. You see. Because that's what Jesus did. Notice in verse number eleven, or verse ten. We'll go to eleven. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Verse number eleven. For he who sanctifies—that means to cleanse or to set apart for a specific use. And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is so good. Because that means that if you come from a broken home, if you come from a home to where your parents did not pray with you, you didn't go to church, you didn't know much about Jesus at all, it means that when you get saved, you have been brought into the family of God, and Jesus Christ calls you one of His brothers. Amen? That means... That your real family is not just your blood, but the real family is who your dad is. And that means that every single saved person here, at Franklin Heights, at all the churches around here, and all across the world, even if you went with somebody in the African bush, and they're making sounds, you know know what the language means. If they love Jesus and you love Jesus, there is a bond. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to remove the wall of separation so that people could be made one. I want to ask you a question when it says that they both have one source. Who is your source? What do you run to? Who do you run to when you hit those walls in your life? I think it's very interesting. It's very interesting. In the world today, um, a lot of times people will go to substances or they'll go to other people. But I have a question for you. When you hit that wall in your life, when you're in the pit, do you go to Jesus? Almost, almost sounds like Sunday school material, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It almost seems like one of those things that you just say when you can't think of anything else to say. Like, well, I, well, I don't know. I guess just, uh, just go ahead and, and and pray. You know, some people say 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 this. Well, we've done all we can do. Now, I guess we just got to pray. Y'all realize what we're saying when we say that? That means God, I got this until I realize that I don't got this. And then once I realize that I can't do anything, I'll finally ask you. You know what we should do at the very beginning? Is ask God for help. Because He's a very present help, as it tells us in Psalms, in a time of trouble. So the question is, do you go to other people? You know, sometimes, and I think this is very legitimate, everybody needs somebody to talk to, right church? You do. Don't be an island, don't be that person, oh, I got it all together. No, no, you, you, you don't. By the way, guys, in the physical realm, the famous last words of many guys is, I'll be alright. Don't get things checked out by the doctor. You know, having chest. Like, Dude, no. Go to the doctor. If you're a man or a woman here today, and you've got issues in your in your soul, go to Jesus. Because a person can encourage you. They can give you that therapeutic aspect of, of when you share your pain. They can empathize with you. But ultimately, they're not going to be able to deliver you. Only Jesus can. You see, now Jeff's... God's response to evil was that He sent Jesus to become one of us. Exactly right. Now when Jesus came, this begins in verse 14. When Jesus came as a baby, He became, I want you thinkers to track with me on this. Jesus came to become one of us so that He could experience the full human condition. Jesus was not kind of like a Jedi Jesus. Any Star Wars fans in here? Okay, Star Trek fans? Okay, don't fight during the sermon, because if y'all ever know, those are, those, are, those are two breeds that you gotta be careful, man. I got a friend in, he's in Florida now, and he's a Trekkie Beyond Trekkie. Guys, Trekkie fans, he had a Trekkie Christmas tree. Don't ask me. But I always enjoyed it saying, now, now what's, what's, the, Star Trek and Star Wars, same thing, right? I'm, oh no, just get, get worked up, okay? Experience the full human condition. Jesus was not a Yoda. He was not, uh, you know, Luke, I am your father. He was not a Jedi Jesus. Like he was not this translucent guy floating around saying, love each other, be a part of my religious club. No, Jesus was one of us. Yet, without sin. He was one of us. Let that sink in next time you don't think that it's worth it to pray. God is God. God is out there. I'm here. God doesn't. No. no. God's Son, full deity, came and experienced every aspect of life. You see, Jeff, what exactly did Jesus experience by becoming one of us? Well, it's there in your notes. He experienced some pretty brutal things. Number one, he experienced undeserved betrayal. Had Jesus ever done anything wrong to Judas? No. He chose Judas to give Judas an extra chance to get saved. He loved his disciples, but yet Judas betrayed him in the garden with the kiss of betrayal. Not only that, but Jesus experienced undeserved emotional abuse. It says in Matthew 26, 65, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What what further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Let, Let me ask you a question. Um, the times that you have been lied about in your life, obviously we don't have time to verbalize that all to one another, but I want you to think of your reactions internally when you knew that somebody was lying about you when you weren't there, but even more so, when they lied about you in the presence of a group. Jesus experienced undeserved emotional abuse. Not only that, Jesus experienced undeserved mental abuse. They said he deserves death. Now there are some children that have grown up in households to where the mom and the dad have unbelievable, explosive, uncontrollable anger. The children will say something like this. I love my mom and dad, but I always have to walk on eggshells. If you're a parent that that is a repeating pattern in your life, Jesus Christ can give you freedom today. He can. He can set you free from that because what happens is you damage the children, sometimes for life, until Jesus gets a hold of them. If you're a parent, that's a reality in your life. Give your heart to Jesus and repent of that sin. Because see, here's the thing some of you have grown up in that, some of you are experiencing that from a spouse or from your child. See, I don't know, I don't know what I did wrong. Tried to provide for this kid, bring the kid to church, pray for him. And they say things like, I hate you, Mom and Dad. And here's the thing. Jesus experienced undeserved mental abuse. Not only that, but undeserved physical abuse. The Bible says in Matthew 26, 67 and 68, then they spit in His face and struck Him, and some slapped Him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Those of you that have endured physical, emotional, emotional, Mental abuse. Sometimes you fall in that last category and you say, Jeff, it just seems like I'm experiencing the silence of God. It seems like every person that I know in my life, they've turned against me. David experienced that. Do you remember? My father and my mother forsake me. The Lord will never forsake me. But you see, Jesus experienced that. On the cross, He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if you have ever experienced those things in your life, even to the point of saying, okay, Jeff, I am in the pit, but when I try to cry to God and pray, I try to go to church to hear a word, and it just, seem, it just seems like the heavens are made of steel, and my prayers, like if I could even put them in a really high-powered prayer slingshot and barely make it up there, they just get bounced back and they come down. It feels like in my life, God is not answering I want you to know that God endured all of that and more that you have experienced. Tina you know, Jeff, okay, if, if Jesus was brutalized to that extent, what was God's purpose for Jesus experiencing that kind of evil? Well, Jesus came, as we saw in the text, in verse number 14, let's read that, to come experience the full human condition. The Bible says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. What an amazing passage. You see, here's the thing. Jesus came in flesh like us to experience all and more That we could ever experience. But here's the thing. He also came to experience what we never could experience. And that's having victory over death. Victory over Satan. And an ultimate bringing people back in a relationship with God. That should blow your minds. Because some of you, I'm so encouraged. Some of you are like, man Jeff, I'm I'm telling my friends about the Lord. I've been able to bring people to church. That's so awesome. But here's the thing. The only thing you can do is bring them to Jesus. We all tracking? You can't save anybody. And by the way, I can't save anybody. A priest can't save anybody. A TV preacher, even if he tells you to put your fingers on the TV screen, alright? He can't save you. All that we can do is point people to Jesus. You see, Jesus came not just to experience what you experience, but He came to bring deliverance from that. To destroy the power of death. Remember in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you have read the books. Some of you have seen the movies. Some of you have read the books multiple, multiple times. You remember when, when Aslan was going and he was going to be killed by the witch and all those ghouls and horrible creatures. And, and, and all the kids were thinking like, this is Aslan, the great lion. That could, that could destroy all of them. But then he went meek as a lamb. it's a picture of Jesus. And then after he had been killed... By the witch, kids went back, and he was there, torn apart. And then, as they as they left, they came back, and he was alive again. And here's something that C.S. Lewis wrote about the witch. He said. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. You see, this I I, I enjoy humor. I enjoy wittiness. And this is the amazing thing about the Gospel. That when Satan knew... By the way, Satan knew that God had sent Jesus into the world because Satan tried to take Him out. And then when Jesus was, was dead... I mean, you're Satan. You kill somebody. They use Duck Dynasty, they dead. Right? Like, they're dead. Like, if you kill your opponent in the octagon, he's dead. But then three days later, if he gets back up, Glorious over life and death, having been there, done that, got the Mountain Dew T-shirt, and now here he is, resurrected again. It's kind of like what you got now, Hoss. You see, that's the point of the gospel: that Jesus experienced what you experienced, but He was able to bring deliverance from that. I think it's such an amazing thing when we think about Jesus, as it says here. Notice the text again. Mark this. Underline this in your Bible: that He was the one who destroyed. The power of death, man. I, th- I think about back in Louisiana, um, mom and dad are serving in a church there, and, and and we we had some friends who were Cajuns, and I, I love that because Cajuns kill alligators, all right. And they killed some alligators, and we went to this huge freezer area, and man, it was just like let the bodies hit the floor, gator style. You know what I am talking about? Like, man, they're they everywhere. But guess what? We were able to do as kids. Lots of things that you would not be able to do if they were alive. You could sit on them. You could open their mouths. You could take pictures. I mean, it's kind of like the same thing uh, like Mike Tyson. What do you call Mike Tyson with no arms? Anything you want because he can't hurt you. Some of y'all get that later. Y'all like that? Okay. Here's the thing, when you think about being able to pose on top of a dead alligator, man, that should remind you that as a Christian, you may be in poor health. Some of you are experiencing horrific physical pain, chronic pain. We have a lot of members who are in the nursing home, a lot of people that are homebound. We need to encourage them to let them know that Jesus Christ has taken away the fear of death. He's taken it away because He's been through it. And it's not just one of those things that you gather around a group of chairs and you tell about all your problems and how bad you stink at life. I do this. I do this. I do this. I do this. Now God uses some groups like that to help some people. But I don't let you know with Jesus it's not that way. Jesus says, you've been through that. I've been through worse. Let me bring you out of that instead of simply telling you that I know your pain. That I feel it. Not only did Jesus come to destroy the power of death, but He came to destroy the power of the devil. It says there in verse number 14 and 15, it says that He was there to, He might destroy the one who has the power of death. You know, Wednesday nights we've been going through different religions, and we've just been, at least I have, once again blown away by the fact that there are billions of people on this planet that have no hope. The Hindus are hoping that they can do enough so that they can get enough karma built up. They can be loyal to their caste system to the extent that one day they will just as a person dissolve into the ultimate reality. We have Buddhists all around the world and many here in the United States that their best hope is is nirvana, enlightenment, the snuffing out. There are over a billion Muslims on this planet! Millions here in the United States who are trying to do enough so that they will enter into paradise. And then there's the average American who's pretty secular in their worldview who may come to church once in a while, but all they're really wanting to get out of life is a good husband, a good wife, a good degree, a good skill set, a good job, and at the end of the day, they say, whoever has the most toys wins. No, sir. Because there are no purses that are pulling along a trailer. And every single one of those groups is under the power of the devil because every single one has wasted their life All He wants you to do is to waste your life. You say, Jeff, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Muslim. I'm born and bred and raised in Franklin County. I believe there's a God, but I know there needs to be a work that's done inside my heart. Today, you need to give all of your life to Jesus. Not part, but give it all. And in Jesus' suffering, verse 17 tells us, not only did he conquer the power of death, but he destroyed the power of the devil. Verse 17 is awesome because it says that he, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the servant of God, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, it's a big Bible word that simply means the substitute who pays your penalty. Now a lot of us, we don't like taking handouts, right? If I don't work for it, I don't want it. Guess what? You could never work for your salvation. This 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 is the hydra of ancient mythology that manifests itself and resurrects itself time and time again in the South. You talk to people about Jesus, they say, Well, I'll try to do better. No. Can't can't work. You see, because it's not God's just wanting you to balance some mythical scale of the good and the bad, but Jesus came to pay all of it because you could never pay it. Because even if you started being a good little boy and a good little girl and a good little adult and go to your Sunday school class and read your a little quarterly and come to the Wednesday night meetings, all of that doesn't mean a hill of beans because you can't change your heart. That's why the Bible says that Jesus came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And in doing that, He is able to identify with you to bring you comfort in the midst of your suffering. And then even more so, in verse number 18, for because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able, this is great, He is able to help those who are being tempted. So whether you're here and you're struggling with an addiction, whether that's with substance, whether that's with an old way of life, an old old attitude style, explosive anger, fill in the blank, Jesus is can help you. Jesus can deliver you. And if you say, Jeff, it's not so much me struggling with an addiction of sorts, but I am deep, deep, deep in the pits of depression, the Bible says that Jesus can give you comfort because He's able to identify with you. Now the old song, I want say this to uh, some of the younger folks. Uh, if you don't know some of the old the old Christian songs, I'm not sure if we have a hymn book up here, but you've got them there in... In your pew, I would encourage you to read through some of that. Let me give you one. This this is gold, this is truth. Old song. Are you weary? Are you heavy hearted? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Are you grieving over joys? Departed. Tell it to Jesus alone. He is a friend that's well known. You've no other such a friend or brother. Tell it to Jesus alone. Do the tears flow down your cheeks unbidden? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Have you sins that to men's eyes are hidden? Tell it to Jesus alone. Do you fear the gathering clouds of sorrow? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Are you anxious? What shall be tomorrow? Tell it to Jesus alone. And finally, are you troubled at the thought of dying? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus alone. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18 tell us that we serve a mighty, powerful king who has endured the worst sorts of evil so that he can bring the greatest good. You say, Jeff, I saw that in the notes. What in the world does that mean? The greatest good is you being radically saved and transformed so that your family will see that you're transformed, they can be saved. The ripple effect will carry out through your relationships. The greatest good is that you can be saved so God can be glorified. But you must recognize yourself, as I've had to, that I'm guilty and I need that.